0: Before introducing today's guest, I want to share with you the results of the survey of your favorite episodes of 2017. I want to thank everybody who responded. A little over 2,400 people uh, filled out the the survey. Uh, You come from all over the world. You live in 68 different countries, which is an EconTalk survey record. And I also want to tell you how much I enjoyed your feedback and comments uh, that were uh, at the end of the survey. They're, they inspire me. They make me uh, want to make Econ Talk better, and they touch me. So I, I just truly thank you for taking the time to put your thoughts into words there. And if I have a chance, I'll respond in some place to some of the particular comments. Uh, here are your favorite episodes from 2017 in reverse order. Uh, number 10, these are the episodes that were mentioned in people's top five most frequently. Number 10. Michael Munger, Don Boudreau, and Russ Roberts on Emergent Order. Number nine, Tim Harford on 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. Number eight, Gary Taubes on The Case Against Sugar. Number seven, Megan McArdle on Internet Shaming and Online Mobs. Number six, Michael Munger on The Basic Income Guarantee. And here are the top five now. Fifth, John McWhorter on The Evolution of Language and Words on the Move. Number four, Benedict Evans on the future of cars. Number three, Nassim Nicholas Taleb on work, slavery, the minority rule, and skin in the game. Number two, Michael Munger on permissionless innovation. And the number one episode listed by 22% of you as a top five episode. Number one was Sam Quinonez on heroin, the opioid epidemic, and dreamland. Um, and the last thing I want to say about the survey for today is that a number of people – complain or observe some people get angry about this that when i list the the episodes on the poll on the survey that it's they're in uh, chronological order i think that's helpful to help people think about when they occurred and what they thought about them but it is a little it's a little bit unfair to the ones that fall earlier in the year i will point out that sam kinonius episode which was number one did fall early in 2017 but of course that proves nothing it still could be a bias um but I also want to point out there's biases against the episodes that uh, are later in the year. They don't get as many listeners. Some people don't ag- get around to them as much in time for the survey. So it's not science, folks. It's not supposed to be. Just a and it's it's just a a survey. But it's okay. It's just a way to give you a chance to tell me which one episodes you liked and didn't care for so much. So. Again, I appreciate it, but I did want to respond to that uh, sometime, somewhat common complaint. And now for today's guest. My guest today is philosopher and author Elizabeth Anderson. She is the John Dewey Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies and the author F. Thurnau Professor at the University of Michigan. Her latest book, Private Government, is the subject of today's episode. Elizabeth, welcome to Econ Talk. It's a pleasure to be here. Your book, and it's quite short, you might even call it more of a monograph, although it includes some responses from a diverse group of people in different disciplines, and then your response in turn. Uh, Your book makes a seemingly crazy, it's a pretty outrageous claim when when I first heard about it, but I actually found it quite provocative, and uh, I encourage listeners who might think, what, to actually open your mind and consider the possibility that Elizabeth is onto something here. And what you write about is the freedom available to modern workers in private corporations and private workplaces. Uh, And I want to start with a quote. American public discourse is also mostly silent about the regulations employers impose on their workers. We have the language of fairness and distributive justice to talk about low wages and inadequate benefits. We know how to talk about the fight for 15, whatever side of this issue we're on. But we don't have have good ways to talk about the ways the way bosses rule workers lives now that's a very strong claim about uh, not that we don't have the language but that bosses rule workers lives and later on you talk about uh, the boss as a as a dictator in fact you call the boss in a modern workplace a communist dictator so I want you to tr- start by trying to flesh out that. That uh, descriptive claim?
1: Right. So, first of all, let's just observe that any complex organization, in order to fulfill its objectives, needs some kind of internal governance structure. And once we scale up, that inevitably involves a hierarchy of offices. So, we're going to have an internal governance structure. It's a little government. And then the question we can ask is, what is the constitution of that government? And the default constitution of the American workplace is a dictatorship. It's top down. The uh, chief executive officer, the managers, they're not elected by the people who are governed within that organization. The people who are governed are the workers they're the ones who have to take orders from their bosses so we have a dictatorship and then the question is why do i call it a communist dictatorship you're absolutely right i'm being deliberately provocative here it's because if you have a system, uh, a system of government in which the government owns the means of production that's communism <laughs> so right it's the corporation that owns the means of production uh, it's it's an internal government unto itself with the form of a dictatorship, so that's why I'm calling bosses communist dictators. Small C communists, not that they're members of the communist party. That would be big C communists.
0: And it's a it's an accurate description in, in a certain dimension. I'm going to challenge some parts of it, but I think it's, it's important to make the observation, which we've made many times on the program before, and I think some people on the... Libertarian side of things struggle to accept this, but uh, a corporation, a company, it, any kind type of workplace with multiple employees is um, it's a command and control environment. It's um, it's top down, as you say. Uh, this observation is made often by Coase in his classic work on the nature of the firm, going back to 1938. Uh, it's essentially Embedded in Hayek's work because Hayek will say uh, – people say complaining to Hayek, well, you're against planning. And he says, no, I'm not against planning. It's, it's a question, as John Bapol and I talked about in our rap video, is who plans for whom? It's who does the planning, and in a, in a true communist or socialist state, uh, the planning – the top-down planning comes from a centralized uh, set of government officials – but in a corporation or a company, it comes from the bosses, the CEO or and, and others in that hierarchy who boss people around. And this is the key point. with In one of the key points, they boss them around without prices. It's not a market inside a firm. So there's planning inside. There's islands of planning, and you and I plan all the time for our lives. So emergent order, which is a favorite topic here, it, it's not that, oh, we just leave things alone. Everything turns out great. That's never been the claim. The claim is – uh, you leave things alone from a certain level of top-down, that is from the government, and you let these private enterprises plan accordingly to um, to figure out what's what's best for each individual and for each organization. And in, the competition among them is what leads to outcomes that we who are in favor of free markets find attractive. So what's wrong with that? So I accept your your nomenclature. It's a bit provocative, but I think it's accurate more or less. Dictatorship's a bit strong. We'll talk about that. But what's wrong with it? So there's, there's top down and within certain parts of the economy.
1: Right. And so I want to stress that my objection is not to the fact that the internal government of the workplace involves some uh, hierarchical structure. I think once you scale up, there's no other way to enable a large organization to coordinate. So they're going to have to be authority relations within the firm. What I object to is what I call private government. And by private, I don't mean it's part of the private sector. What I mean is that the bosses exercise nearly unaccountable power over those they govern. And my objection is basically that it leaves workers vulnerable to all kinds of abuse. So one of the uh, examples that I cite, although it's far from the only one, is the fact that workers in the poultry industry aren't even allowed to have bathroom breaks. They're told they got to show up wearing diapers. <laughs> they're mocked, <laughs> told, you know, if they don't have diapers, they're urinating on themselves. It's just an appalling humiliation and abuse. Workers should at least be entitled to go to the bathroom. Uh, but we have many we have many other cases ninety percent of restaurant workers suffer sexual harassment um, just mountains of abuse and the abuse exists because bosses have unaccountable power and that's what I call private government
0: well that ninety percent seems a little high to me but it, you could argue it doesn't matter it's even if it's ten percent or twenty or thirty it's it's still horrible um, and of course we have laws against certain types of Abuse by uh, bosses. Obviously, a boss who strikes a worker uh, can go to jail for assault or other other things. What I found most interesting, though, is the range of stuff that bosses can dictate to workers uh, that is that, that, that are totally legal. And Quite was, right. Yeah. You, one example being lack of bathroom breaks. Again, I don't know how common that is, but again, well, even if it's just once, it's still pretty appalling. Uh, what else do you got for me?
1: Well, we could take a look. At white collar workers who are quite commonly pressured by their bosses to uh, contribute money to favored political campaigns or political action committees. My own husband, who works uh, actually at a nonprofit healthcare organization, has been pressured to contribute to their political action committee. And it's one of those things where you know he resents that he doesn't particularly care to advocate for <laughs> what his uh, what his employers' political causes are because especially since most healthcare organizations' primary interest is raking in more money and hiking prices, and he doesn't actually believe in that. Um, but you know his donations are monitored by his boss, so he's resisted that, but. A lot of workers may well think twice about whether they're really free to do that, especially if questions of promotion uh, up the hierarchy of the firm are on the line.
0: You also point out that the employer often has the ability to dictate what you do when you're not at work.
1: Quite right. And this, I think, is even more objectionable. Um, Normally, we think that once you're off duty, you should be free from any kind of control or regulation by your boss, but in the United States, the default rule of employment is employment at will, and that entails that your boss can fire you for any or no reason at all, including things that the boss finds out about your off-duty activity. Uh, For instance, uh, if one has a, a gay partner, in many states one isn't protected against discrimination on account of sexual orientation, stuff that you might post on Facebook expressing perhaps controversial opinions can get one fired even if, even if the Facebook posting isn't addressed to fellow workers or harassing them in any way, but just expressing an opinion that the boss disagrees with, um, recreational use of drugs and alcohol over the weekend. Seems to me the boss, none of the boss's business what you're doing. Of course you can be reasonably expected to show up sober on Monday, (laughs) but, uh, You know, recreational activities over the weekend I don't think should be subject to the boss's control, but in reality, uh, people are fired for what they do over the weekend and in their leisure time.
0: And what's the – I I can do it, but I'd like to hear you try to do it. What would be the standard libertarian response to these kind of concerns – why yes. Why do people like me tend not to worry about this until we read your book?
1: Uh, because there's always the exit option. Uh, there's a formal symmetry between the right of the boss to fire you for any or no reason and the right of the worker to quit for any or no reason.
0: One of the things I liked about your book, Elizabeth, is that you did a very fair job talking about the people who don't agree with you, which is rare, which I appreciate. <laughs> um, you didn't – Make like a straw man or uh, take cheap shots uh, or distort the arguments of, say, Adam Smith that we're going to get to in a minute. I thought you did a, did a very nice job. But that would have been my response when I, somebody had mentioned this stuff. And I said, this is silly. You can always quit and go work somewhere else. So what's wrong with that argument?
1: Well, one of the difficulties is that for the vast majority of workers, their only other options are to get employment with another dictator. Um. So I point out that libertarians wouldn't be so happy if workers and citizens behind the Iron Curtain could have freely uh, uh, migrated to any other communist country. (laughs) That's not a really great set of options, and I don't think it would make them free just if they could have moved from Hungary to Czechoslovakia before the uh, fall of the Eastern Bloc and I don't think we should be happy with the set of options that workers face today in the
0: United States. So, of course, one o- different option is instead of working for another dictator's work for yourself. Um, and there's a lot of good humor on the web about making fun of the fact that you replace a monstrous boss at a, at a when you work for an employer, and then you become self-employed, and you work for a different monstrous boss. But um, who you know, pushes you, drives you, makes you work 20 hours a day. It's yourself, uh, and it's being self-employed is, is not exactly um, – it's not a, a bed of roses either. So what do you think of that option, though, self-employment?
1: Well, I think for some people it, it is really great, and indeed what I argue in my book was that historically that was the libertarian dream. Everybody be their own boss. And then it's up to them how hard they're going to work. They reap all the fruits of their labor. Uh, They're totally free from other people's authority. That was the original libertarian dream. Uh, It is true that people, some self-employed people, tend to be very hard, self-driving people. But I think there's a lot to be said for autonomy. Uh, I, I myself, I, I I myself tend towards the workaholic.
0: Yep.
1: <laughs> I'm very highly motivated by work, and so you know I drive myself pretty high. And in a way, as a tenured professor, it's pretty much up to me how hard I work. <laughs> and uh not tell voluntarily- anybody.
0: Don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> we recently had Brian Kaplan on, so he we he's already pulled the curtain back. So every, they are all our listeners know about this. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, in reality, one of the things that tenure is selecting for is very hard, self-driving people. Um, but I, I feel a lot better that I'm choosing this for myself than if somebody was dictating to me that I had to work this hard.
0: So I think it's more, you know, when you think about my argument on these issues, or the way I would generally frame it, it's not so much that you have the choices to work for a different dictator. It's that the fact that they're different choices usually mitigates the level at which a dictator will take advantage of the power we have available to them because they're not, they don't have a monopoly. Um, if you go to Silicon Valley and you spend any time at all, at say Facebook or Google, uh, as I have wandering around meeting folks now and then, it, it looks more like a um, summer camp than it does a uh, communist dictatorship it's a very pleasant place to work more or less sure there are unpleasant things we've talked about some of the challenges that maybe google has with with political diversity or ideological diversity there's a little bit of groupthink and uh, other things going on there but on many many dimensions it's um it's an enormous improvement now not every company in america looks like that uh, not every Workers able to find a job at such a place where there's all the, the free food and, and other delights, ping pong tables, the huge things that matter in America um, that are scattered around those kind of places. But the argument would be that yes, the boss has that potential, but the boss pays a price, and a firm that abuses its workers is going to struggle to attract workers. Uh, now, I always found that to be a pretty compelling argument. Uh, or at least that empirical argument, what your book forces me to do is consider the possibility that th- that the fact that it's maybe rare is not sufficient to reject uh, your argument uh, of abuse. Uh, the fact that these abuses do take place uh, does raise a flag for me that even though competition may reduce them, uh, it's still an issue to, to take seriously. But how do you feel about that? Do you think the competi- – just on the empirical side – and the relative costs and benefits. Do you think competition uh, is an, is a sometimes at least effective protector of the worker?
1: I think competition uh, is helpful for highly skilled workers in whom the corporation ends up having to invest a lot to get the most out of them. Then it's a big cost for them if a worker quits in disgust uh, about the the climate in which they are, have to work. Uh, for lots of other workers, especially low paid unskilled workers, it's not at all clear that um, the exit option puts sufficient pressure on employers to make conditions decent. So we do observe quite a lot of employers who tolerate extraordinarily high turnover rates uh, because if they're unskilled, it's not that costly just to hire new people Uh, For instance, Amazon warehouse workers, uh, there's enormous churn, partly because the job uh, has high accident rates and it's totally exhausting. Few people can actually bear up under the physical stresses for all that long. And Amazon seems to be perfectly content to tolerate extraordinarily high turnover rates without improving the conditions at work. I would also point out that Competition depends a lot both on where we are in the business cycle. So now we're in a favorable condition with very low unemployment. But we've had the last two recessions, we've had extraordinarily protracted periods of high unemployment. And there, the exit option isn't really much of a threat to employers. Uh, And it's really difficult for workers to quit in a high unemployment environment and finally we should also pay attention to the fact that the extent of competition uh, for workers is geographically extremely uneven so recent research has found that especially in rural areas and small towns as well the number of employers who are competing for people in a particular occupation might only be one or two or three and under those cases, it's very easy. You have essentially monopsony conditions arising, and that may be a cause of why even in an economic boom that's lasted for many quarters, uh, wages haven't increased and uh, conditions of work uh, would naturally also not improve under monopsony.
0: I, I don't know how common that is. I'm a little bit skeptical about that. And I think the I think it's a little more complicated in general. I I often think about my cleaning uh, crew, the people who come to clean my house once a week. I'm fortunate enough to be able to afford a cleaning crew. Uh, We pay them $100, roughly $100 for the hour or so that they're here. It's usually three or four people. So they make roughly $25 an hour uh, at a job that is somewhat unpleasant, and uh, – but they have very little education. They don't speak English particularly well, so I'm not uh, – hardly at all. The head of the crew – now, I'm not sure what she pays them, so I don't think it's split evenly. Per I'm sure she takes a little bit more. It's her car that drives them around, and uh, I, su- I suspect she provides the vacuum cleaner and, and, and other tools that they use. But that's kind of a shocking thing that they make $25 an hour, which is – or on average at least, which is uh, – Two and a half times or so time I don't know what the exact Maryland minimum wage is, but it's well above it, certainly well above the federal minimum wage and the answer question is why why do I do that? Why do I pay them so much money? And the answer is, of course, is that if I don't, they won't come they'll they'll go to somebody else's house now there's a lot of competition in that sense that there's a lot of houses that want to be cleaned in my neighborhood where people are busy and would rather pay for cleaning than doing it themselves, but it's kind of striking to me that at least in that case. There is competition does protect them, at least on the monetary dimension. They're also, of course, they're not my employees. They're self-employed. So maybe that makes a difference, too.
1: Sometimes self-employment uh, helps. I I think I would be very skeptical if the workers under the supervisor are making anything close to $25 an hour. Uh, of course, it might depend on where you live, too. And in, in, in urban areas, uh, workers' wages tend to be higher. yes, they But I'd, do. Also, I, I'd also like to point out that um, <clears throat> there's been an increase in uh, various kinds of precarious employment, temporary employment. Uh, and so in many cases there might only be one temp agency <laughs> and with a scarcity of uh, full-time or permanent employment. So we, I should note, for instance, that in the recovery from the recent recession, uh, uh, most of the jobs that's been created have been temporary. So people are hired out by a temp agency. Uh, and uh, those workers, a huge chunk of their wages are taken by the temp agency. They're living under very precarious conditions uh, and it, it severely weakens any kind of bargaining power they have and power to resist whatever abuses they face when they are uh, appointed to work for a particular firm. You
0: know, the, the temp agency thing is extremely interesting to me. I don't think it's uh, – I know it's not well understood by most economists, certainly not well understood by me, yeah, and I've looked at it a little bit. I know – and those of you out there listening who are econ um, grad students, I encourage you to think about this as a, as a dissertation topic. Um, it's true what you said. They do take a large chunk – those agencies take a large chunk of the workers' salary – They also charge an enormous amount, and it raises the puzzle as to why employers are willing to pay such a premium to hire workers through that agency. And it has, I think, to do with the regulatory environment, the legal environment. But I don't think – I haven't seen anybody look at it very carefully. It's – and it's also not – calling them temp agencies in some settings, I'm sure that's accurate. But in many other settings, I I know people who who run factories who deal with this. They're not really temporary. They're just work through the agency. They actually work for years and years in this yes. strange relationship where the employer is playing, paying a premium over and above what they would pay if they hired them directly. And it, what it unfortunately, I, tragically, I think it's a, it's a issue of insulating the employer from legal issues related to illegal immigration sometimes, could be to threats of lawsuits of other kinds. Um, so companies are paying an enormous premium right now, and that does hurt workers, but it's not as it's a little bit uh misleading to say that i think that they take a large share it's true they take a large share but it's a large share of a very large number and what the workers left with is enough to get them to still be willing to work there the puzzle is why workers don't contract themselves out more directly in time at times and why employers don't why this middleman of the of the agency is an economically viable institution in today's world is a very interesting question i'd like to see uh Maybe somebody's worked on it that I don't know about. So if anybody out there knows it, I'd sure like to see it. But you know, when you say there's only one or two agencies, so start one. You're, you know, you're suggesting there's a, a profit opportunity. Um, why wouldn't you expect someone to come along and, and do a better job?
1: Well, the workers themselves often don't have the, uh, the either the management skills or the credit to borrow money to start. Their own, and the people who do are mainly interested in taking the biggest cut they can from the workers they employ. So I I don't think you can count on on competition here really helping the workers
0: very much. But you're suggesting that you could make a lot. You, not a worker, starting their own firm. You, Elizabeth Anderson, you could make a lot of money. You could start a firm that pays the workers. 20% Twenty percent more, maybe ten percent more, a decent amount more, and you'd get a bunch of them, and you'd still be able to make a lot of money if you could sell those workers' time to their to employers.
1: Right, and so the question is uh, whether there's that much room. What is the advantage to the new temp agency in offering higher wages? It's not. It's not clear to me what the advantage is to them.
0: You'd make money. That would be the claim. Wow, well, but you're they would claiming, make less money. Well, you <laughs> make less money than the existing firms. But you're claiming the existing firms are exploiting the current workers. So there'd still be, in theory, room for a employer, a new agency or a new employer to come along. It's always the issue here in these kind of competitive situations, right? If if. If Amazon treats its workers badly, people with low skills, in theory, should be able to find a work a workplace where they're not abused. What you're suggesting is they're all being abused, or that it's frequent, uh, or that it's common because of the lack of skills that these workers have, and the market power that these employers have over them. And I, I, I disagree with you about the frequency of it, but I don't disagree about the existence of it. And, and I want to come back to my the point I made earlier, which is you could argue that the existence alone is sufficient, and let me, let me make the argument against me very as strongly as I can. If someone says to me, we need to require seatbelts because seatbelts save lives, I always say, yeah, but it, it treats people like children, and I don't do a crude cost be- – I don't do any kind of cost-benefit analysis when I think about liberty. I'm a, I'm a classical liberal or a libertarian, and I think people should be responsible for their own lives. Yes, there's an issue about externalities and and being able to control the car if you're not wearing the seatbelt and hurting someone else. Put that to the side. Just this issue of whether – just take the nanny state claim. I don't like the nanny state and the fact that the nanny state might save lives by banning trans fats and taking into account the fact that trans fats might be good for you even. I have no idea, but the fact that the nanny state makes mistakes, even if it didn't make mistakes, it would bother me because I don't like the idea of being infantilized by uh, the power of the government. And what the point you're making, I think, which is very powerful, is that why would I – if I accept that point in the case of public government, what we would call normally public government, why do I accept it in the case of private government? Why do we do a cost-benefit analysis there when it comes down to freedom? And I think that's a very compelling point.
1: Yes, exactly. And, but I also want to make the additional point that the constitution of workplace government is itself a creature of state regulation. It's the state that creates the infrastructure of employment law, and it's already handed all the authority cards over to management. Uh, And so in that context, management doesn't really have any incentive or rarely has an incentive to deal any of those authority cards back to workers. And that's one of the reasons why workers have so little liberty on the job and even, in many cases, off the job.
0: I don't know. I mean, you'd have to – one of the challenges of your worldview, at least some pieces of it, is that it's hard. It seems hard for it to explain the enormous transformation of the workplace over the last hundred years. And it's, I would argue it's very little to do with, with government regulation. It has to do with – Market forces that have raised standard of living, raised wages, reduced the work week, gotten rid of many of the abuses. I mean the fact that so many people more than ever today can take effectively leisure on the job if they want. It's true that in some cases they can't, but in so many more they can, suggests that the overall situation is not as bleak as you're, as you're arguing.
1: Well, in some respects, it is the case that uh, conditions of work are a lot better than they were even 50 years ago. Uh, I would credit automation for a lot of that, especially, you know, in manufacturing jobs. It's a lot less injury producing. It's a lot less polluting. It's way safer. And uh, you can go uh, uh, right outside of Detroit. To the River Rouge Automotive assembly plant, uh, they have tours it 's amazing how much better working conditions are for workers assembling these trucks than they were back you know uh, during the the era of mass industrial employment. so I agree with you that there that there have been some genuine gains, but there have also been some degrees of deterioration because of the decline of permanent full-time employment. Uh, there's an increasing percentage of workers who are part of the precariat, who really are not sure what they're going to be doing uh, some months hence. Um, it's a lot less stable, especially for younger workers who are now you know, jumping from one job to the next because nothing really lasts or builds into a career. And those people are especially vulnerable.
0: I want to say something about the gig economy and Uber, Lyft, et cetera, yeah. where on the surface, at least in it, I feel this way. I suspect you don't, but it seems to me that that allows a lot more autonomy for people um, and they really appreciate it.
1: Well, it is true that uh, Uber drivers have a great advantage in that they can set their own hours and that does enable a lot of autonomy. Uh, the downside is that um, a lot of these workers also don't have secure enough employment to, to plan ahead, do long-term projects like uh, buying a house. Uh, there's, there's a lot more insecurity. And, of course, if you actually take a look at the business plans of Uber and Lyft, they're losing money like crazy. It's not yeah. clear that they have a, a, a real idea about how to turn a profit.
0: Yeah, it's not clear it's viable. I'm, I I I agree. Let's step back for a minute. I, I really enjoyed the first part of the book where you talked about uh, the levelers and the egalitarian strain in 17th century thinking, which I knew nothing about. Uh, so talk about who the levelers were, and we'll bring it – we'll come back full circle and get to modern times. But uh, the sort of vision that people had about personal liberation, flourishing, and autonomy um, – there's it's a you tell that story very well so give us um give us that background
1: yes so the levelers were a bunch of revolutionaries in 17th century England during the English civil war uh and they were pretty much we would call it today the left side of the spectrum although of course the left right spectrum wasn't really invented until the french revolution about a century later um The Levellers, what I find interesting about them was that they were, as the name implies, very strong egalitarians. And they were also very strong advocates of free markets. And that's what really struck me, because today we're used to thinking that egalitarians are against the market. But in fact, through the entire 17th and 18th century and in the United States, deep into the 19th century – egalitarianism and free market thinking went entirely hand in hand. So the levelers really kicked it off. Many of the levelers were uh, small craftsmen and they were opposed to subjection to the monopoly guilds. They wanted to run their shops as they saw fit and be able to trade freely without the regulation of the monopoly guilds. And so they made constant petitions to parliament to abolish monopoly because monopolies of course were a state creation, the state would hand over a monopoly to a guild and the guild, all the shots were called by the large craftsmen and they regulated what the small craftsmen were able to do, the days of trading the kinds of goods they would put on the market, where they were allowed to trade. Very powerful arguments were made by the levelers that this repression of free trade was uh, created stagnant. Uh, It stagnated the economy. You'd have much greater economic growth if you just allowed free competition to arise. Uh, And they also argued quite plausibly for their day that uh, the rise of open and free competition would multiply opportunities for ordinary workers to become self-employed and get out from underneath uh, an oppressive boss and enable them to set up shops for themselves. I think it was a very compelling argument in its time and, and highly
0: persuasive. And then how, and then how does that – how did Adam Smith's vision fit in with that?
1: Yes. And About Smith a century is- later. About a century later, Smith is is advancing that argument, I think, with very powerful reasoning uh, for its day. Um, Smith also argued that uh, free markets would liberate workers. Uh, but you really had to be serious about freedom across the board. So that required abolition of monopolies of all sorts. He was especially concerned about the monopoly in land in England. Only a couple hundred families owned virtually all the land in England. It was locked up in these dynasties and the laws of inheritance forbade uh, the great estates from being broken off and sold off in pieces so yeoman farmers were pretty much shut out of the market in land. Smith argued that the great aristocratic landlords were very inefficient at farming. The most efficient worker would be the one who self-employed, the yeoman farmer. He had the greatest interest in improving productivity because he got to keep 100% of the fruit of, fruits of his labor. A tenant farmer didn't have nearly that incentive to improve productive techniques because he would only get to keep part of the portion of his labor, of the value that he adds. Uh, And so Smith argued that the most efficient system, the most productive system would be one in which uh, the estates could be freely sold off in bits to uh, yeoman farmers Uh, And then you would have a boom in agricultural productivity. But even more importantly, from Smith's point of view, you would have a boom in self-employment. And that would dramatically improve the freedom of workers. Smith thought the same about abolishing the monopoly guilds, abolishing apprenticeship and other forms of involuntary labor. Uh, This is all Smith's free market vision was overwhelmingly designed to support the freedom and uh, material advancement of ordinary workers. So we should really be reading Smith as a friend to the ordinary worker and arguing that freedom and equality as ideals are compatible in a free market system.
0: And as you point out, I thought this is a, a great observation, the Adam Smith's pin factory isn't really much of a factory. It's really an artisanal pin to some extent. It's a group of skilled people working together, but without the kind of capital and um, infrastructure that describes a modern industrial manufacturing plant. And as you point out, and I'll let you continue your story, the Industrial Revolution comes along, which changes the size efficient and effective size of firms, and that changes everything in your vision.
1: Yes, exactly. So if, if you read Smith carefully, what you find is the crux of his argument is that incentive effects swamp economies of scale. He basically thought economies of scale were negligible except for a very few types of enterprise Uh, canals, for instance, are really large. They take huge infusions of capital. Uh, But there weren't many things like that, he thought. Um, So what's important to keep in mind is that even though historians conventionally date the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, a little bit before Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776, in reality, nothing like the 19th century factory system was predictable in 1776. The shops, the the manufacturing enterprises were very small. And if you have like Smith's Pin Factory, only 10 people working at it, you could easily see that in such a small enterprise, there could be a lot of camaraderie between the owner of the shop and uh, the employees, each of whom had a reasonable expectation that with further experience, they might be able to set up an enterprise of their own. One of the key pieces of evidence that I think is quite telling for this era, which was equally true of the United States, uh, was how common drinking was (laughs) between bosses and workers. It showed that (laughs) they were uh, having fun together. Uh, They they were much more on an equal plane uh, than what happened with the rise of the factory system. So what happened with the industrial revolution is uh, a set of technologies was invented that uh, massively increased economies of scale to a, a degree that was completely incomprehensible in the late 18th century. And once you, have, once you scale up the size of the enterprise, again, I, I think it's just fundamental scale and hierarchy pretty much go hand in hand. It's almost impossible to manage a large-scale enterprise without a hierarchy of offices. And it's that distance between managers and workers through layers of the hierarchy uh, uh, that opens them up to, uh, to greater forms of abuse than when their boss worked under identical conditions to they themselves as in the traditional artisanal mode when uh, you know a master craftsman did exactly the same kind of labor as his journeyman. It's,
0: it's, ex- it's extremely interesting. I think about my, my father's father, my grandfather, who was a peddler and who was, I would say, temperamentally not very well suited for employment uh, and working for somebody else. And as a result, had a pretty hard life financially. Did okay. Um you know, but a lot of ups and downs and and some very tough times and never any particularly great times uh for for his financial well being um, and so i don 't want to romanticize self employment, and i don 't want to understate the harsh, hardships of a Manchester England factory worker in eighteen fifty because i don 't think they were very pleasant. Of course nothing was very pleasant back then. Um there were a few people who had pleasant lives, but not not so many. And when I step back and and put your history in perspective, I'm struck by the fact that that all changed mostly through forces not related to people like you and me, um philosophers and and policy analysts, but but more just through the natural forces of of competition and and human innovation. So those Technologies that made the firms bigger, that allowed workers to be treated in a somewhat brutish way by authoritarian bosses and hierarchies. That's what gave us the wealth that lets us have what so many people have today. Not everybody, but so many. And so I I had to ask you as a philosopher, as an ethicist, was that a good deal? Should we not encourage that over the generations or should we pay a price and intervene in that system in ways that would slow it down, but would lead perhaps to more dignity in the short run.
1: So I think if we look at the history of the industrial revolution, it is true that the great benefit it brought was spectacularly increased productivity. Just immense, mind-blowing compared to previous centuries. But I wouldn't credit technological improvement alone For the improvement in ordinary workers' lives, I would argue that the rise of the labor movement and the democratization of the uh, advanced uh, countries, the economically advanced countries, were also critical factors in making sure that the fruits of that higher productivity were widely distributed to the workers, so that was, I think, an essential part of the story of the second half of the 19th century uh, and all the way through the post-war era. The strength of the labor movement was very, very important in ensuring both the dignity of workers within the firm and their access uh, to, the, to the fruits of this enormous technological improvement. And what we see is in, you know, in just the broad history of capitalism is there's an inflection point in the mid 70s. And what you see around that time is worker productivity, labor productivity continues to increase. But workers are no longer seeing uh, uh, advances in their wages that track rises in productivity. Whereas from the post-war era, right around to the mid 70s. Workers' wages were increasing pretty much exactly in line with increases in productivity. Workers really haven't done well in, in the past uh, few decades, notwithstanding spectacular technological advances, because most of the economic growth has been absorbed maybe by the top ten percent.
0: Yeah, I, I just people. think I just think that's just totally wrong, but it is though so, it's widely believed and I'm not we're not gonna uh debated here other than to point out that we don't measure productivity particularly well with, in the era of computers. We don't measure prices very accurately when there's enormous rapid quality improvement. So I would argue that our measures of standard living are grossly inaccurate. And to just make a crude argument, since we, we're not going to get into the weeds here, I don't think the average American would want to live in 1970 – or seventy three, which is sort of that inflection point. So I think that's a bit of a that's a long another story. Interested listeners know that I mean all my listeners know this is one of my favorite issues in creating a series online called the Numbers Game. Uh, you can go to policyed dot org and look at the first two videos are produced. that start to look at these issues in more depth. So I encourage people to do that. But I do think I do think there are people being left behind these days. And I don't. I just don't think it's the bottom 90%. I think it's the people with the least skills who are least able to be part of of the modern economy. And I think they do have a very hard time. I think they do have a tough time in the workplace. I think the places that are – the options that are available to them are pretty – are much bleaker than um, than they used to be and certainly bleaker than what you and I are able to enjoy where we're working. And I don't – that part I, I don't deny. Um, talk a little bit about uh, – and you can react to that if you want.
1: So it just seems to me that the income data show that the vast majority of increases in, in, in income have been reaped by pretty small slice at the top. So yeah, you could argue that maybe objective standards of living uh, uh, have improved because now everybody's got cell phones and so forth. I worry more about the difficulties that workers have in, say, getting access to healthcare to a certain degree. Healthcare reform has helped them, but a lot of those workers are actually uh, priced out of the market even today because we don't have universal healthcare. It's uh, education, access to higher education is is increasing in cost. Uh, there are some real basic things here where I think – people are having a harder time getting access to, not to mention uh, housing prices uh, in the areas of major job growth. And, and here's a point at which you and I would probably agree. I think the uh, intensity of zoning regulations that forbid free development of cheaper housing for ordinary people uh, is a major cause of outrageously inflated housing costs in the major metropolitan areas where we're seeing uh, the the largest growth in really good jobs. And that is severely constraining opportunities for ordinary workers.
0: Yeah, we do agree on that. Um, I would just make the point on the areas of housing, health and education that most of the problems with affordability come from government subsidizing uh, access to the system. So, it's a little bit like the Yogi Barrel line. It's so expensive; nobody. Go- it's it's so crowded; nobody goes there anymore. Um, it's true that the prices have been driven up, but that's often because more and more people have access to it. Now, in the case of education, it's often through subsidized loans, which is a really messed up way to to do it. I think, unfortunately, if you don't finish college, in particular.
1: Oh, I brutal, agree. It's awful. It's a brutal
0: system, and yeah, yeah we yeah, we don't we probably agree on some of that too. But before we we close. I'm going to ask you for some suggestions, but I do want to mention that uh, Nassim Taleb in a recent episode, uh, last thing was last summer, uh, did talk about how employees are more like slaves than, say, contracted workers. So for listeners who are struggling to open their mind to Elizabeth's arguments, um, he does make the point that to keep your job is really a a thing that workers long for, and they will do some things that are not so pleasant. They'll give up that weekend uh, to work overtime because the boss wants them to and so on. So uh, even for white-collar workers, there is a a level of slavery there. And the question is, is one one way to think about it is, well, is it worth it? And I think a lot of workers would say it is, but I like your point, which is, but that's just not – Necessarily, the right criterion for deciding whether some of these practices should be legal or uh, become conventional. So, let's let's turn to um, things you'd like to see done to make the world a better place in this dimension.
1: Yeah. So, I think it would be worth Americans to look overseas to the German model. Uh, Germany has incredibly high productivity, uh, very flourishing manufacturing sector. Uh, and they also have a system of governance known as co-determination in which workers elect representatives uh, to management. And that gives them a voice in uh, how their workdays are regulated on the shop floor. It uh, gives them a measure of dignity as well as a pathway uh, into uh, being able to exercise the skills of management. I don't think anybody looking over at the condition of the ordinary German worker would think that they're losing out very much in standard of living. Uh, they have a really great life, um, And that suggests to me that we don't have to sacrifice technological improvement and productivity gains if we give a voice to workers in the workplace. I think we can have our cake and eat it too.
0: So why don't we see more – if that's true, uh, why don't we see more worker cooperatives here in the United States? Why wouldn't, again, a firm that wants to attract good workers create that that type of uh, relationship with their workers?
1: Well, as it happens, uh, German-style co-determination is actually against the law. Uh, (laughs) And the reason for this is that technically speaking, under American labor law, uh, co-determination is considered uh, uh, the same as a company union where the boss effectively regulates the union, and those things are illegal. I think we should modify labor law to permit such arrangements. Not company unions, but co-determination on the German model.
0: What else would would you like to see?
1: I would like to see changes in labor union law as well. I think it's important to, for workers to have access to modes of organization that aren't necessarily cited in a particular individual shop floor. Uh, in the days of mass employment, mass manufacturing employment, it was easy to organize workers uh, on a very large scale. But those kinds of systems of employment have really declined lately, and that's made organization much more difficult. Uh, So I would like to see, for instance, access to unionization on the part of temp workers. I'm not sure exactly how that would work, uh, but I do think it's time to rethink the classic uh, union model as it's developed in the United States.
0: Do you think we should change the, um, the ability of, of employers to fire at will?
1: I think some constraints on the ability to fire at will would be merited. Uh, one way to deal with that is if you did have worker voices within the firm, they could still handle this internally without the need for litigation. Uh, Of course, litigation expenses, if you actually take it to a court, are very, very expensive. Uh, But there are other ways to modify the internal governance of the firm so they can handle this internally, which is usually cheaper than going to the courts. I'd rather see something like that, more autonomy for workers in the internal governance of the firm than handing everything over to a complex system of state regulation that would be enforced either by a government agency or by the courts.
0: So one of the – I'm going to – let's close with a bit of a conundrum, which is that as sympathetic as I am to many of your arguments about freedom, the economist in me tends to look at the incentive effects and the costs and and whether that's going to ultimately make most people better off. I'm not a utilitarian, though, so it's, it's an interesting challenge for me. But I'm thinking about the following. So let's say we change the ability of uh, – affirms to fire at will on the basis of, say, drug use, on the basis of political expression, uh, maybe on the basis of suspicion of sexual harassment. Incredible things have happened in the last six months when uh, stories came out not proven in court, but accepted as probable or believable or almost certainly true. And um, people were summarily fired from all kinds of, for-profit, nonprofit enterprises, um, people's roles taken out of movies they'd already performed and were filmed in. Uh, it's really an extraordinary time, and most of us think, gee, that seems great." That's how the market responds to these kind of things. It's many ways responded better than than the way the political um, market responded to accusations against various polit- politicians. And yet, once we put those issues as rights, uh, put those opportunities as rights, the ability not to be fired for those behaviors or not to be dictated, are going to make it a lot more expensive for people to be hired. Um, And my worry is if we move to what you would call maybe a freer system, it's going to be a world where workers uh, have a hard time getting access to it because none of these things are really ultimately going to be so clear-cut and objective. There's inevitable subjectivity and legal nuance, and it's really going to make – people better off. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I do agree that that might be a concern. Uh, and I, I think we really would have to look empirically, see how it plays out, uh, and then go back to the drawing board and rejigger the way the internal governance of the firm works Because the other side of the coin, of course, is that a lot of people are unjustly fired for reasons that, you know. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. So there are trade offs here, and we just have to look empirically and see if we can uh, design institutions that
0: give us the best trade offs. Is that the way you'd think about it, though? Would you look at it? in a utilitarian way as costs versus benefits, or would you put some freedoms as sacrosanct that you would not allow a private firm to impinge on, infringe on?
1: Yeah, so I do think that there is a role for some baseline liberties that the employer cannot infringe upon, uh, and that would include things like freedom with respect to sexual orientation, uh... <laughs> And basic anti-discrimination law, certain levels of fundamental dignity, like the right to go to the bathroom. There, there are a number of things like that, which I think aren't going to detract in any significant way from productivity. Uh, just basic, in a way, a set of constitutional rights for the worker to certain kinds of liberties that the employer can't infringe. So I think there's a baseline level that could be set as part of the constitution of the firm. But firms and working conditions and so forth vary so much. I don't think a lot can be done at that level. Uh, you want the internal governance of the firm to be responsive to some of the more fine-grained concerns that arise due to very different uh, manners, modes of production. Uh, and that, I think, you get that information by enabling workers to have a voice in how they're governed.
0: Why don't you close by talking about autonomy generally and um, and human dignity? I you know in certain deme- certain sense, your workplace is a third of your life roughly, a little bit less in today's world where we usually get the weekends off. Um, and yet it's it plays a outsized role, I think, in our self-respect and and our sense of identity. Maybe that's a bad thing, um, but I think it's a real thing. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I think it plays a spectacularly large role in the sense of dignity and worth that workers have, especially in countries that inherited the pro- Protestant work ethic. <laughs> yeah. I think this is a very deep cultural thing and it's no longer attached to any particular religious idea. Uh, so here I am an atheist, but boy, do I, I am very strongly driven by the Protestant work ethic. <laughs> no getting around it. Um, it's just, I, I feel it in a very deep rooted sense. Uh, and I think many people do. That's, that's, that's a sense of where they get their dignity. I think it's a very, very powerful strain in uh, American culture in particular, even in contrast with the rich countries of Europe. And I think there are costs to it, absolutely. One of the things I worry about is that the impending automation of millions of jobs may well lead to a situation in which tens of millions of people maybe don't have many prospects of stable work at all. And I think we really have to worry about where are they going to find not just the means of subsistence. Uh, Even libertarians are thinking about having some kind of basic income scheme to cover them. But it's a question of how are they going to fill their hours with meaningful activity in which they can take pride. Um, I think the problem hits men harder than women. Women are used to thinking, okay, if I can't get a job, I can raise my kids. And that's super meaningful activity. Uh, And men maybe will come around to that view, but I think it's harder given the way um, dependent care is gendered in American society. Men feel a little uncomfortable in those roles. Uh, And then, you know, suppose we get the Google truck and millions of truck drivers are unemployed. What, what are they going to be do? What are they going to be doing? What's going to be the, their source of pride and dignity, in a sense that they're contributing to society? I, I think it's a real open question how we're going to handle that.
0: My guest today has been Elizabeth Anderson. Elizabeth, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you.